good morning. Yeah, like Daryl said, my name is Jeremy Gardner. Um, just been around the area for about five and a half or six years now. And we we kind of like Henry County. I don't like the traffic, uh, but everything else is, seems okay. Just thanks to Daryl and to your team for, for having me here. My wife is here, and then we have three kids, uh, a nine-year-old named Colton, a five-year-old named Kaysen, who is redheaded in every sense of the word, so probably remodeling the kids' area uh, right now. And then we have a two-year-old girl named Landry, um, who's just the sweetest thing you've ever met. If she likes you, she doesn't like you. She's not sweet at all to you. Uh, yeah, but again, we're just we're thrilled to be here. I would say this about Henry County. Uh, Henry County needs Sharon Church. I think we need a church with the heritage and foundation of Sharon uh, to help this county grow and help us to reach people, reach the thousands and thousands of people who live here for Jesus. So I'm thankful for the ministry of Sharon Church. It's been here for years and years and years. I taught. Uh, this morning over in the chapel, stood on hardwood floors that have been there since 1914, which is just crazy to me, uh, but amazing. So I'm just, I'm thankful for you and for the ministry that you, that you have here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, the book of Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to walk through verses this morning, 13 verses. I'll come back to a few at the end, but I want to walk through 13 verses uh, this morning. I want to talk about, um, just, I'm going to call it the long way home. For us this morning. Um, Zach and I had met before, and I just, I had emailed him this week when I found I was going to be preaching here this morning. I said, hey, what songs are you doing? I had no idea what songs he was doing, and just, just know how God, how powerful God is. Those songs are going to carry us into this message this morning. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll start studying. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the power of worship and how it turns our hearts away from ourselves and our circumstances and our struggles and reminds us of your greatness and also your goodness to us. And God, may we not forsake that line of thinking when we step into studying your word, but that you, the creator of the universe, saw fit to communicate with us through your word. God, may we never grow numb uh, to the miracle that is the Bible. And as we open it, God, would you uh, speak to us through it, a word that is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing through bone and marrow. God, make us available to you through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know uh, what kind of home you grow up in or what kind of home you're raising right now when it comes to discipline. I did not grow up in a home that did timeouts or a home that was, hey, why don't you go think about this for a little while? I thought about my mistakes while my dad was wearing me out over the bed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't, we didn't have timeout. We didn't get to think about it. My mom didn't count to five to give me a chance to obey her. I obeyed or I didn't obey. Those were my choices. So I don't know like, what kind of house you grew up in. Also, I'm the firstborn of six. I'm the oldest of six. I have five younger sisters. <laughs> that's not even the funny part yet, but that's, that's fine. So I, uh, I'm, I'm the oldest, and I'm, I'm typical firstborn, very structured, organized. I'm a people pleaser. I want my parents to like me. I want to cross every T and dot every I, not because I care about my work, but because I want people to like me, especially my parents. If my dad were to ever say, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Yeah, that's, that's murder to my ears. I couldn't handle it. But on top of that, then I have these five younger sisters, plus I'm the oldest. And raise your hand if you know the oldest in your family gets the worst punishments. You have, does anyone understand that with me? Yep. People not raising your hand, you're not the oldest because you don't understand. <laughs> We're held to a higher standard. We are, there, our parents are trying to figure out how to parent with us. And we're the ones that all of their friends see, and so they have to make sure they make an example out of us. How many are the youngest kid in the family? Yep. Yeah, the loud ones, right? <laughs> because no one disciplines you, ever. 
They just didn't. You had different rules to live by. Same parents, different set of, of rules for you. And, it, and I, hear, I know why now that I'm, I'm older and I have three kids. They were just tired. Your parents were tired. And they were just done disciplining because the middle child wore them out and they were just done. And so they're like, whatever, do whatever, it's fine. We'll sort it out with a counselor later, it's totally fine, it'll be just whatever. But I was the oldest and I, just, I always wanted to please my parents, especially my dad. Uh, my dad ran a tight ship and I just wanted to make sure he was pleased with me and everything was really, really good until about sixth grade. And in sixth grade, I went to the medieval fair. Has everybody been to a medieval fair, like a renaissance festival? I didn't go because I wanted to. If you want to, that's fine. I did not want to. I was made to by my history teacher in sixth grade, and I hated history, but we had to dress up like a, like a medieval character to go to this, which was awesome for a sixth grader, uh, trying to figure out his identity and let people like him. And so um, I grew up in church, and so I was going to be St. Francis of Assisi. That's who I was going to be. And so I was. And I went to the medieval fair, and on the way back, we're riding in the school bus, and we're in the back of the school bus, and we, my friend had bought a bag of tear jerkers. I remember tear jerkers, just a super sour gum which apparently were like medieval fare. I had no idea that that was like medieval um, culinary treat, but it was. So my friend had a bag of them, and he took one out of the bag, opened the bus window, and threw the tearjerker out of the window, and it hits the car next to us, hits the windshield. The guy speeds up, the bus pulls over. Uh, he, the person who I gave him the car was the number one prosecutor in Sarasota County, which is awesome. Like if you're gonna do it, like do it all the way, go ahead. Uh, so, so, but he was pretty gracious. When we got, when we got back to school, I didn't do it, but I was in that friend circle, so I got called in the principal's office. We had the whole conversation, and the principal's like, so what happened? And I was like, um, when necessary, use words. So I'm not gonna use my words right now. As St. Francis of Assisi, I will not share this gospel with words. <laughs> so they called my dad, and my dad comes to pick me up, and um, you know, like you know when your parents are mad at you, they don't have to say a thing. You just know by the way they pull into the parking lot that they don't want to be there. Uh, and so I get in the car, and it's super quiet. And my dad starts driving, and instead of turning the way to go home, he turns a different way out of the parking lot. And I'm super analytical, and I was like, hey, I don't think we're going the right way home, Dad. He was like, did I ask you which way was home? No, sir, you did not. Uh, and he goes, I think we'll take the long way home today. So I don't, again, I don't know what kind of house you were raised in. The long way home was not the good way home for us. I am, I, I just, I want things to be efficient in my life. And the most efficient way to discipline me is just to get it over with. And I'll learn from my mistake and I'll move on. Let's not drag this out and have conversations. Like, don't try to tug at my heartstrings. Punish me and let me go and I'll be better. I promise you I won't make that mistake again. And I'm, my dad says, we're going to take the long way home, which meant we're going to talk the entire way home. And I'm talking to a man who does not want to talk to me. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever again, but he's talking with me, having these conversations. And I would get older and we'd have more of these long ways home. It'd be after a, maybe not so good grade on a test or after a practice in which I didn't give my effort or a game in which I uh, cost us a, a game or cost us a win or cost us runs or whatever it was. And we'd have these long way homes with my dad. And I hated them. Gosh, I hated them. Because I didn't like that form of discipline. I just want you to tell me I did wrong and let me go about my life. But now I'm, I'm a father to a nine-year-old who was wired just like me. And we've had some long ways home together already. When it comes to the Lord, there are ways in which he disciplines us that feel like the long way home. 
And there's part of us in our culture where we like instant gratification. We want the immediacy of things. I remember, I mean, years and years and years ago where I'd have to walk into a store to rent a VHS tape. The store was called Blockbuster. I'd have to have a membership card, and then I'd have to hope they had the actual VHS tape there because they didn't actually have it on the shelf. It was an empty box. I'd have to go ask the person, and then I'd just pray, please, please, please let them have Predator. Please let them have Predator here. Then I could, so I can rent it again. Please let them have it. And then if they didn't, I couldn't watch it. Or they would, and then I could only have it for two days, and I'd have to give it right back. Like, binge-watching wasn't a thing. We binged on other stuff, but never binged on TV. And now, all you have to do is click a button on your remote, and you have everything you've ever wanted right there with no one else renting it before you did. And you have it for as long as you want to. Amazon delivers in two days. And if it's three days, I'm furious. <laughs> because I paid $99 a year for this to be here on Saturday, and it's, it's not here. Right? I'm furious. They used to do that by stagecoach. Now they don't anymore. Uh, you ever realize how frustrated you get about how long it takes to fly across the country? You realize you're flying across the country. In hours, you're crossing the country. It used to take months to do that. On the Oregon Trail, you could get all kinds of diseases. <laughs> so we are such an immediate gratification type of people that the longer something takes, the more impatient we get. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take us through Hebrews 13, and I want to talk about our good, good father. But I want to Hebrews 12, I'm sorry. But I want to teach it in such a way that we understand that his discipline is actually representative of how he loves and cares for us. So let me start with, there's two pillars we need to understand about God, two pillars on which to build our faith. The first is this, God is sovereign. Take a note, God is sovereign. Now, sovereign, the best way to describe sovereignty of God is God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to. That's what a sovereign does. And sovereign is the word king. We don't understand king in America. We understand president. But if you don't like the president, he doesn't have to be your president if you have the right hashtag. But kings, like kings are kings and they're everyone's king. And they do whatever they want, when they want, how they want to do it. That's what it means that God is sovereign. He is in charge of all things. He controls it all. And he doesn't often ask for our advice and how he controls things. And then secondly, you must understand that God is, yes, sovereign, but also God is good. He's good. So one way to talk about sovereignty is that he is great. He is powerful, but that he is good is a different line of thinking, and you've got to be careful. God's goodness is not how we define goodness. He is good, which means everything he does is good. He sets the standard. If he does it, it's good. Just because we don't like it doesn't make it not good. He is sovereign and he is good. And you have to have both pillars. They are both essential to understanding who God is. Because if God is sovereign but he is not good, he is a bully or a dictator. Have you ever wanted to walk away from God or have friends who have questioned God because he just seems like an angry dictator? And if we only believe that God is sovereign, then we have a bully on our hands who makes us do whatever it is that he wants us to do for him. But if you believe God is good but not sovereign, then God becomes your grandparent. And no offense to grandparents in the room, but when my kids come back home from being with their grandparents for a couple of days, I have to retrain my kids about what is right in the world. Because ice cream with sprinkles for dinner is not right in the world. It is for me, it's not for you, you're nine. 
eat your broccoli. <laughs> or if God it could be a grandparent, or maybe he's just a vending machine. If he's good and not sovereign, it means that he just likes to give us everything that we want. Maybe he's a care bear. But you've got these two extremes where we totally misunderstand and misinterpret who God is, and we've got to have them both. He is sovereign, but he is also good. So I'll say it plainly this way. We must view God's sovereignty through the lens of his goodness. Because he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to do it, and boy, is he good. And it's for our good that he does all things, how he wants, when he wants to do it. A.W. Tozer, the old uh, theologian, he said that the most, what, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if in your life, if God is good but he's not sovereign, you don't know how to handle hard times. Because if God is good but he's not sovereign, then why would God ever allow hard times in my life? Then he must not actually be good. And if God is sovereign but he is not good, of course then when we face hard times, well, of course it's hard times. He hates me. What you think about when you think about God is the single most important thing about you. So the author of Hebrews is going to walk us through a proper perspective of God because the truth is we are all going to face valleys in our lives. We may create them, we may step into them, but we will face them. But the author of Hebrews is going to tell us what we do in the midst of them. So we're going to go into Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, and we'll jump ahead at the end. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, let's just stop there. This is going to take a while. Uh, therefore, old thing I learned from an English teacher, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself a question. What's it there for? This therefore in Scripture is going to point us back to context. If you're going to study Scripture, context is key to understanding Scripture. We pull things out of context all the time and make God whatever we want him to make. But this is who God is. Therefore, so what's the therefore? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews lists all of these people, and we call it the hall of faith. Everyone from Abraham to Moses, even on to Rahab the prophet. People who exhibited great faith in times of struggle, they exhibited faith. But at the end of Hebrews 11, the author says, these, all of these were commended for their faith, but none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, verse 1, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So all these heroes of the faith now, all of them are our witnesses. And because we have these witnesses about what faith looks like, and in hard times, because of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. First one's going to take a little while, so we're going to have to get through it slowly. Therefore, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders. And then the author says, and the sin. Now, maybe you've heard this taught, and it's been taught, throw off sin that entangles you. And that can be different for all of us. We all have a different kind of sin that makes us trip and stumble. But context is key. So the key here is the word the. This is a particular sin. What sin easily entangles us? What sin keeps us from running our race? Well, it's found in Hebrews chapter 11, disbelief or a lack of faith entangles all of us. And from that one sin gives us every other sort of sin that we would fall prey to. Because if you don't believe that God is who he says he is, then why obey his commands? 
If you don't believe that God is for your good, for your ultimate good, then sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. The core of our sinful behavior is found in we actually don't believe that God is who he says he is. This is the sin that so easily entangles us. So we've got to set aside that sin and then run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This word perseverance is, is interesting. In the Greek, it literally means to abide under or to sit underneath or to stay under for a season. So if I'm going to define perseverance, I think perseverance is a patient persistence. Sometimes we read perseverance and we think of the athlete recovering from an injury and they persevere through it. This is a, it's sitting under something. It's endurance. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Underline that phrase, marked out for us. We each have a race to run. According to Ephesians chapter 2, God's created good works that we should then walk in. So we all have a race to run. And we have to run this race with perseverance, which means this race is a marathon, not a sprint. And you train for them differently. Verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So now the author is going to tell us, here's how you run your race with endurance. The first thing you do is you fix your eyes on Jesus. There's a new horizon, and I'm set on you. That's what that song is telling us that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. And this word, to fix our eyes, is the same way in which um, like a, a, a racehorse would put blinders on its eyes. I guess it wouldn't. Its rider would. I don't know if a horse could do it with his hooves, but he, the rider can with his opposable thumbs and such. And so he puts the uh, blinders on so that the horse, all the horse sees is what's in front of him. So how do we run the race with endurance? We fix our eyes upon Jesus, and here's who he is. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the author he wrote the book on faith. He's the perfecter. He finishes faith. Philippians 1.6 says that God is faithful to finish whatever it is that he begins in us. He's faithful to finish the good work he started in us. So let me say this to you. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, you're fixing your eyes on someone who's already run the race before you. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Let that sentence set in for a second. Joy endured the cross. I don't endure anything with joy because I'm enduring it. But scripture says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And if you're like me, this is going to take a little while to sink in. What was the joy set before him? You were. Your salvation was his joy. And all the firstborns who think they're not good enough and that no one actually likes them, they just like what they offer them, all of us who fight so hard to make sure we come across as something but in our hearts believe that we're never actually that person and we can't believe that anything that we do would ever bring Jesus joy, this scripture says, no, 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 it was for his joy that he died on the cross for you. You are his delight and his joy. So fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is why scripture is so important and why the book of Hebrews is so important. Hebrews connects the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. You cannot know the New Covenant without some understanding of the Old Covenant. You ever have somebody um, go watch a movie with you, but it's like, it's like the same one in a trilogy? You ever done that? Any Star Wars fans? Me neither. I don't get it. I'm sorry. I just don't, I don't get it. Uh, but my son loves it. And so we were like, we're going to watch the Star Wars movies. And it just made sense to me. Let's just start at episode one. That makes sense. It's one. Except I have no idea what's happening and who's who. When you step into the New Testament without the Old Testament, you might like the ending, but you have no idea how glorious the ending is. So here, the author says, he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. What is it? Oh, great, he sat down. In the Old Testament, there's a sacrificial system, and the high priest would offer sacrifices day after day, and depending on the season and time of year. But in the temple courts, there were no seats for the high priest. Why? Because the high priest was never done offering sacrifices. Because a sacrifice would only be good for the sins that were just committed, not for the sins that would be committed in the future. And so a high priest never sat down. What we know about Jesus is that he is the high priest in whom we can relate. And so the fact that Jesus is sitting down means that he is the author and finisher of your faith. In other words, when he declares on the cross, it is finished, he means it. And it's done. You have no, long, no more sacrifices to offer. You have nothing left to do to grovel, to earn his pleasure. You can't do anything. It's finished. He's done the work. So the author of Hebrews says, now fix your eyes on Jesus, who isn't standing and working, but Jesus who has finished his job. Then verse 3. Consider, another way of saying, fix your eyes on him, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because we typically fix our eyes on ourselves to fix ourselves. But no, fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he tells us that this Jesus, we fix our eyes on him, we won't grow weary and lose heart. How many of you this morning would say you're weary? Anybody weary? The rest of you are lying. You're tired. It's October and the holidays are coming. We're weary. It's been a long week. We're trying. We just feel like we can't get out of the pit. Almost to the day, six months ago, God uh, just radically shifted our lives around unexpectedly for us. And it felt okay at the time. We're like, this is going to be good. God's in control. God's sovereign. He's good. But as the months and months have gone on, and for me, at the turn of the month of October, it was really hard for me. And I was worn out from trying to keep my faith. But I had begun looking at me and my circumstances instead of on the author and finisher of my faith. And I have grown weary and I have lost heart. So then in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, well, what sin? The sin of disbelief. And doubting the goodness of God, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So now the author of Hebrews is that person who's like, hey, you think it's bad now? It's just going to get worse. Which no one wants to hear. He says, you haven't resisted fully yet. Then verse 5, and you have com completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. And it says, and he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. This is what the writer of Proverbs 3 would consider encouragement. 
that God gives hard times to you. Be encouraged, church. This is the encouragement from Proverbs. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. A few things to understand. This word discipline is not God's wrath. So please hear me clearly on this. As a follower of Jesus, as his son or his daughter, there is no, no wrath left to be poured out upon you. You are not subject to the wrath of God. Because scripture tells us when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he absorbed the wrath that was meant for us. There's nothing left for you. So if you're walking around scared of the wrath of God and you call yourself a son or a daughter of Jesus, hear me, there is no wrath left for you. It's been absorbed by Jesus and that's the glory of the gospel. He, this is not wrath. This word discipline is not wrath. But it's also not punishment. This word means formation. My son, do not make light of the Lord's formation. And secondly, but don't lose heart when he rebukes, when he reproves or brings things to light about you. Because aren't there two typical responses to the Lord in hard times? Aren't there two? There's two responses for us. We either make light of it or we make much too much of it and we grow weary under it. We either make light of it because we say, well, it's not that bad. We make light of it in the way that we live our lives or we are burdened. We lose heart by it. But he says, don't. And why? Because in verse 6, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, he chastens or scourges everyone he accepts as his son. So the author of Hebrews, through Proverbs, is trying to tell us is discipline is evidence of your sonship. Discipline is evidence that you are a child of God. Romans chapter 1 would tell us that for us to be given over to our own sinful desires is actually evidence that we don't actually know God. So, if you can go about sin, repetitive sin, and never feel the conviction and the weight of the holiness of God with all the love in my heart, you don't know Jesus. And you're living a lie. And on the flip side, if you feel like there's just discipline constantly on you, that there's conviction that once started at a surface level and now it's making its way deep into your soul and you're, just, you're tired of it, praise the Lord, he loves you. And you're his. You're his. This word here in verse uh, 6 that he chastens, it's the word scourge, or to scream at even. So my five-year-old Kaysen, uh, nine-year-old Colton, Colton's super analytical, Colton did not want to swim until he was like six or seven years old. Not because he didn't like to swim, but because he understood if I go in the water, I might not come back up from the water. He understood I'm heavier, I'm going to sink to the bottom. Kaysen, my five-year-old, has zero filter when it comes to danger whatsoever. So he'll, he, at, at two years old, just stepped into a pool just to see. Jesus walked. I figured I should also be able to. Kanye, I think, walked on water, so maybe I could. So he does that. Kaysen's also the kid where I constantly have to remind him, do not go to the road. Stay away from the road. He's like, why? Because you'll die. Don't. Do you see the squirrel? <laughs> that could be you. But what kind of father would I be with Kaysen if he approached the road and I just said, buddy, buddy, let's don't do that. Let's just stay back here. Stay back here with me. That's, it's not safe out there. Come back to the unicorns and, umber, and, and rainbows over here. It's better. It's just dangerous. Like no father says as, he, as his kid runs to the road, hey, just be careful out there. 
but because I love my son and I want to love him for a long time here together on earth, I yell at him, get away from the road, stop, you're an idiot, get back here. (laughs) It's because I love him. So if you feel feel and and hear the Lord saying, get back, you're an idiot, come back. Don't go to her apartment now. Don't go there. Don't get on late at night. Come back. You're being stupid. You're a fool. Come back. It's not because the Lord hates you. It's because the Lord loves you. Because we have a propensity to play in the road. And this is evidence that we are his. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 7. Endure hardship is this one. There's that word endure again. Patiently persist in hardship as discipline, as training, because God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? I have a list of sons I know who are not disciplined by their father. Do you? Do you like those kids? Do you spend time with the kids who have no discipline in their lives? You don't spend a lot of time with them because you'd go to jail if you spent too much time with those kids. Because what he's saying is a, a father, a loving father disciplines his children. If you are not disciplined, but everyone undergoes discipline, whether you like it or not, you undergo discipline. Then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Verse 9, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. You don't respect them in the moment. But as you get older, you begin to understand and respect your father for the discipline. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they, our fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Here's the truth for us to understand. God cares more about our good than we do. You know how I know that? Because I've tried to eat healthy. You ever tried to eat healthy? You enjoy that? Nope. If you had the choice between like a kale salad and double stuffed Oreos, which are you choosing? An Oreo salad, that's correct. (laughs) Because the truth is, I care more about my pleasure than I care about my good. I care about enjoying the moment than I care about my good. I also know that because I'm a father. And I care more about my kids' good than they do. And they don't get it. It's only beginning. But they don't get it. So it makes sense that that God would say, no, no, I'm, I'm doing this for your good. I actually care about your good more than you do. And I know more about your good than you'll ever know about your good. So how I get you to your good is my business and not yours that we may share in his holiness. And this is what goodness is, that we would share in his holiness. You understand that holiness is good? Holiness is is his goodness. To be set apart is good. That we might share in his holiness. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I love the beginning of verse 11. Um, because I have a really hard time with cheerleaders. I'm sorry if you're a cheerleader. I married one, so I can have this conversation with all of you. Have you ever been to a football game um, where the team was getting just was losing by like 50 or 60 points? Two minutes left in the fourth quarter, and the cheerleaders are cheering the losing team on towards some kind of victory. Have you seen that? Let's go team, W-H-I-N. You're like, there's no shot. What are you saying? 
How about, let's not get hurt? We can do that. Um, happy. I think sometimes in the Christian life for us, we think that following Jesus means we have to pretend everything's happy and good and joyful all the time. It's not. Sometimes things are awful. And sometimes they hurt. And sometimes people hurt us. Sometimes we hurt people, and sometimes things don't seem fair, and sometimes our kids get sick, and sometimes we get cancer, and sometimes we lose a job. Listen, you don't have to fake it. To fake grief is to rob yourself of the healing that comes through mourning. The author of Hebrews says, I get it. It's not pleasant at the time. It's painful. No one wants to go through suffering. No one wants to be disciplined. I didn't walk out of the principal's office to my dad's car saying, hey, dad, let's do some discipline today. How's that sound? You don't. It seems painful at the time. However, later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And this isn't, hey, there's a silver lining. That's not what this is. This is a, hey, this has purpose to it. But he says it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Uh, James would say that we have to let patience finish her work, that we might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what our problem is? We don't let patience finish her work. We want to get out as quickly as we can. And so our prayers are, save me from, get me out of this circumstance and situation. But the promise of God has never been that he would deliver you out of hard times, but that he would meet you in them. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so what we have to understand is this is a harvest, so it takes some time to harvest things. you got to plant, you got to water, and you got to watch and work and hope the sun, then hope it rains, and then you yield a harvest of righteousness. This is a harvest. This is endurance language. This is the difference between a crockpot faith and a microwave kind of faith. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to eat a crockpot meal way before I'd ever eat a microwave meal. Put something in the slow cooker... For a day and let it marinate to to smoke some ribs or brisket come on like give me that i don't want to microwave it give me this that we are so prone to jump ship because it's hard and we miss what comes through the valley if you're in hard times this morning if you feel like you're suffering like god has left you the promises that he hasn't and this is for your good let it finish don't, show, don't short circuit it. Let it finish. Because it produces righteousness and peace by those who have been trained by it. Trained by what? Well, by the discipline. By enduring the long seasons of discipline. Season. Therefore, verse 12. Well, what's it there for? Well, because it's a long season. Because you can't get this kind of formation quickly. Because it takes this kind of intentional time to make you into who God is making you to be. Because of that, because you can't jump ship, because you can't just get out of it, because it's going to continue. Because of that, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. In other words, get ready for it. Prepare for it. You know, everyone loves Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It makes a really good cross-stitch, a great pillow on your couch, maybe an afghan, maybe a good mug or a bumper sticker. But that by itself makes you believe things about God that aren't necessarily true. Because the context of Jeremiah 29, 11, it's the prophet Jeremiah talking to the people who are in exile 
and he says this verse, and they don't just magically teleport into freedom. It's at least another 70 years of exile for them. So what plans does God have for them? Exile. But what's true of those plans? They're plans to prosper them and not to harm them. You understand why it's important that we both know that God is sovereign and good? Because if you're in hard times right now, if not struggling, if you're suffering, if you feel like the walls are closing in on you and you believe God is sovereign but he's not good, then why keep going? And if you believe he's good but not sovereign, then you've got to give up because he's not who he says he is. But here's who he is. He is the God who does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to. And he's so good that he will allow you seasons of suffering and discipline that you might come out perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Lift your head, you weary sinner. We must lift our eyes and fix them upon the, the author and finisher of our faith. In verse 13, make level paths for your feet. You've got some walking to do. So that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And here's what's important for us. This call in verse 12 to strengthen our arms and our weak knees is not a call to be courageous. It's not a call to more effort. It's not a call to, hey, do your devotions better. It's not a call to, to burn all your ACDC CDs at the next camp bonfire. That's not what this is. This is a call to remember that God is who he says he is. It's not a call to effort. It's a call to remembrance. To remember that God is good. He's a good, good father and you are loved by him. That's the truth. And anything that says otherwise is a lie. Whatever circumstances you think, no, no, you mean them through the lens that maybe he's not good, maybe he doesn't love you. If you shift that focus to, no, no, he's my good father and I'm loved by him, then this must be a good and perfect gift from the Father of lights. So we endure and we walk forward in hardship. What it also does is it makes the paths level for those who would come behind you. Parents, one of the greatest things you can do for your kids is to walk through hardship and discipline like Hebrews 12. Because if your children see you enduring in hardship, it will change their lives forever. It will remind them that God is who he says he is. He's not just the God of the mountaintops, but he's the God of the valleys. And he hasn't left them. And you don't have to cast your chips in. But we make it level for those who are coming behind us. So let me quickly just give us three pieces of application that I want to just close. If you're like me this morning and maybe you're walking through a valley, maybe you're in the midst of hardship, maybe you feel like the Lord's discipline is just present, I just want to give us three things that we must do. And the first is that we must rehearse God's greatness, his sovereignty. Rehearse his precise greatness. You ever think about all the things that had to happen even for you to simply be born? And they, because your parents had to meet millions of people in the world, and they had to meet with their particular DNA strands. They had to meet, and not just meet, but actually like each other. And not like, like each other like friends, but like more than friends. And then that, you know, you know the rest. <laughs> right, that had to happen. But before that had to happen, your parents had parents who had to meet and fall in love. And then they had parents that had parents, who had parents who had parents. Like, do you understand, just simply for you to be born, how much love had to happen? Like, how much it literally had to happen for you to be born? 
You ever think about what it takes to keep the world spinning, what it means for you to be here and not somewhere else? When I think about why I'm preaching here this morning, it blows my mind. I shouldn't be the one up here. And why this passage and why the songs that we're singing, I don't know. But I can remember the precise greatness of God, that he is sovereign, he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to do it. And secondly, uh, you have to remember God's pure goodness. Not your version of goodness, but God's pure goodness. And if he's doing it, it's good. He's good. Your breakup is good. The struggle you're having in physics is good. You couldn't get in the college you wanted to, that's good. Having a tough, tough marriage, God's doing something good in the midst of it. Death of a loved one, it's going to be good. God's at work, he hasn't left us. Rehearse God's precise greatness, remember God's pure goodness, and finally we have to rest in God's perfect grace. You cannot earn your way out of the valley. You cannot obedience your way out of hard times. To think that if I just do the right things, then I'll get things that I want is not the true gospel. We must rest in God's perfect, finished grace. Jesus is sitting on the right hand of the Father. Author of Hebrews would say it this way. In verse 18, he's going to talk about Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and God had sent set great restrictions on you cannot don't touch this mountain don't climb up this mountain but stay away from this mountain if anyone comes up here they're going to die but they want to talk to god so like hey hey uh, we don't want to moses why don't you go talk to god seems like you'd like to talk to him when there's fire around this makes sense you should go and talk to god and moses is like i'm not no i'm not doing that last time i did that he made me come here and spend time with you guys i will not i will never do that again but he goes up the mountain so the author of hebrews says you have not come to the mountain mount sinai that can't be touched that is burning with fire to darkness gloom and storm or to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even a mountain, an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. We don't come to a God who cannot be approached. We don't come to a dictator who does what he wants to make himself happy. That's not who we approach anymore. Here's who we approach. You have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. When you approach God as his son or his daughter, there are thousands of angels joyfully singing, he's here, she's here, she's come. Like joyfully. High school musical, like singing that you are there and they can't believe you've made your way there. I don't get that because that's not how I approach the Lord, especially not in discipline. My approach to the Lord in discipline is, okay, what do I have to do to earn it back? I'm sorry. What do I do better next time? And Hebrews 12 says, no, 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 that's not how you approach the Lord. You come to him and they are cheering you on. Come up the mountain. Come on. Come up the mountain. You're here. You're here. Come talk to God. He's meeting you here. He loves you. You're a son or you're his daughter. You've, you've received direction. You've received instruction. You've received discipline. Come forward. You've come to God, the judge of all men, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Saying, Abel sacrificed to the Lord a blood offering, and God received it. The author of Hebrews is saying, you think that was good? You know, Jesus gave his blood, and now we no longer do sacrifices anymore, so quit your groveling. Strengthen your arms. 
tighten up your knees. God's waiting for you. So if you are tempted in the midst of your discipline to believe that God regrets saving you, Scripture tells you otherwise. It was for his joy that he endured the cross for you. And the discipline you're facing is not evidence of his wrath or his hatred towards you, but it's evidence of the fact that he loves you and you are his. So don't cheapen the discipline by looking for a way out. God's not trying to make you lovable or acceptable. Here's what I learned about those long way homes with my dad. I wanted a transaction. My dad wanted a transformed heart. Jesus does not exist for your transactional obedience. His hope for you is that you would know him. Like really know him. And you don't know him by checking boxes. You know him by enduring hardship. You know him by enduring discipline. There's a good, good father who is perfect in all of his ways. And you are loved by him. Would you pray with me?